Hello and welcome to the Movie Bug Podcast. Today I have uh, a guest with me, and the guest is Kaylee Donaldson, um, writer, critic, and on Screen Rant and Sci-Fi Girls, and co-host of the Hollywood Read Pod. Welcome to the bunker, Kaylee. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's always nice to have a guest. Start off by telling us a little bit about yourself. Uh, sure. So I'm a pop culture hot takes merchant for uh, Screen Rant, for Sci-Fi Fangirls and Pajiba.com, which is my main stomping ground. Uh, I'm co-host of the Hollywood Read podcast and my main interests are talking about actors named Chris or why Disney are kind of evil, but I still love them. And <laughs> basically any movie with vampires, which is very fitting for this. Very good, <laughs> yes. So is it just actors called Chris that you talk about or do you sometimes branch out into other actors? <laughs> I occasionally branch out into Scandinavians as well. So, okay. but the actor's name Chris is where all the is where all the great Twitter content comes from. Brilliant, wonderful. Um, how did you get um, started in this uh, sort of life of writing and critiquing? So it really started. I was unemployed and I was still living with my parents several years after graduating, and was at my wit's end. And basically, there was a tweet from uh, a screen rant editor. It's like, hey, does anyone want to write for us? And I didn't have anything else to do at the time and had always wanted to be a pop culture writer but thought oh, no one makes money off of that what are you talking about right and then i eventually started writing for them and kind of fell into this as a full-time job um, i mostly write uh for pajiba.com and i get to kind of cover everything from pop culture to celebrities to social media scams which is one of my favorite things to talk about right. and I, the fact that i get to do it Full time is kind of astounding because I still, every time I mention to someone I'm a writer, like nine times out of ten, the question is, I didn't realize you could make money doing that. It's like, <laughs> well, make money is kind of a, you know, that that's, there's a, you know, there's a lot of definition behind that term that doesn't really apply. Uh, <laughs> living in Dundee helps. You know, if I, if I lived in London, it would be a different story. Well, that's the, the great thing also probably about your trade is that you can kind of take it anywhere. You don't really need to, to be in London, sort of uh, pounding the streets, so to speak. Yeah, that is a benefit. I still get to do things like I've gone to I've done film festivals. I went to Toronto last year, which was amazing. But in terms oh, wow. of that was that was really the coolest experience of my professional life. But now where everything is basically a streaming exclusive or everything is released on the same day around the world now, there really isn't the same kind of pressure to be where all the screenings are. Yes. which is a benefit. It was something like with Avengers Endgame that came out last week. Uh, one of the joys of being British is we get that before the Americans anyway. Uh, yeah. But there was no real like pressure to have to rush to see it for everyone else because we all saw it at the same time, really. That doesn't apply for everything. But in that kind of case, it's really interesting. <coughs> so how did you sort of like get your voice heard above the others? Because obviously, I mean, um, in the world of the internet, and like you say, um, it reached out via Twitter. Um, there must have been a sort of like a, a, a clamor of people trying to do what you're doing. Oh, there must have been. I was still kind of stunned that it happened. It really is a sort of combination of good timing, sheer dumb luck, and I guess talent on some level, not to my own horn. I remember the thing that got me spotted at Pajiba while I was writing for Screen Rant, and I was only doing like you know, a couple of pieces a week for them. I was writing my own blog, and I decided to write up this, like, looking back, totally navel-gazing piece on like my experience being a professional writer and just the way that people's opinions change the moment they find that you're being paid to write something. Because yes. even though I was making, like, next to nothing and really wasn't writing anything especially controversial or even all that hot takesy, there was still this sort of weird sneer that came from some people. But then there was all of the other people that thought that I was already making, like, Stephen King money. And having right. to explain to them that that was just not the case. And then I, I wrote that up and it ended up 
being read by a lot of people who do write professionally. And then I got spotted by my editor who was like, hey, do you want to write for us? And I thought they meant like, you know, a one-off piece or something. And I yeah. said, yes. And then all of a sudden I had a full-time job with them. So that was very nice. That's good. <laughs> that I mean- does not happen very often from what I understand, <laughs> which, you know, I, I, I'm kind of glad that I fell into it this way. So do you get a lot of sort of self-determination about what you write or is it, it, do you get sort of, you know, directed at various areas? It depends on the publication. A lot of um so for Screen Rant in particular, we kind of pitch certain ideas or a lot of pitches go up. So like, here's Avengers Endgame and here's a bunch of things to write on or here's things we'd like to cover. If you have an angle on that, we want to hear it. Yeah. Uh, with Pajiba, I have a lot more wriggle room I kind of have a freedom within reason to cover whatever I want and that was incredibly helpful in helping me to grow professionally and to find the kind of things I am interested in and the things I'm really good at writing about Uh, I also do editing for sci-fi fangirls so I get a bit more of an insight into why certain get pitched and how they get picked up and things like that so that's also been really helpful we'd like to ask these sort of questions about um uh over the last sort of 12 months year, we're kind of vague on this sort of one. What would be the sort of most uh, disappointing film that you maybe were looking forward to and turned out not to be quite so, quite the thing that you wanted it to be? Oh, Bohemian Rhapsody, which oh, I really? legitimately hated. I was, as someone who grew up loving Queen, I come from a family who were obsessed with them. My grandmother saw them live at Wembley and has not shut up about it to this day. So <laughs> I was really revved up to see that film, although I was still very apprehensive obviously because of everything that had happened with Brian Singer and all of the stories swirling around it the film was going to try and downplay Freddie Mercury's sexuality and all these things but I still at the very least thought I'll get to see some Queen songs on a big screen and then they couldn't even do that right it was one of the most ineptly made films I'd ever seen that was also completely morally repugnant right and and I spent so much of last Oscar season just like gesticulating wildly at my laptop screen like how on earth do so many people love this movie it's the only time where i've ever negatively reviewed something and had members of my own family do the well you're just a snooty critic your opinion doesn't matter on this which is very strange that one was just really i mean it was disappointing on a number of levels but usually when i'm disappointed by something it doesn't go on to make 900 million (laughs) dollars Um, it is, I think it's one of the strangest uh, films of, uh, of the last year because it, it, it does seem to have this kind of real sort of, um, line in the sand between sort of like some critics and, uh, like the, the fans, which I mean, happens occasionally, but not all that often these days. I mean, um, as we found out on our podcast is like, we, we tried to sort of find, um, films that have been critically panned, which are very good, um, and it turns out that critics mostly know what they're talking about. Mostly when they say a film's rubbish, it is. But Bohemian Rhapsody, like you say, really took off with the, the crowds. And like you say, even our Oscar season and stuff was, uh, you know, it wins. Um, but yet, like all the reviews, I mean, quite a lot of the reviews beforehand were saying this isn't a good film. This is, you know, poorly made and doesn't really uh, do the sort of subject matter justice. Um can you think why that, that, that sort of 
difference. I think it is really us. just sorry. I think it really is just so much brand loyalty to Queen. Most yeah. of which seem to have been encouraged by Brian May and Roger Taylor. I mean, they keep a really tight grip on their intellectual property and their their good names. And you see so much of that in Bohemian Rhapsody. Like the editing of that film is so atrocious, but it's clearly been done by like a chart of we need to have this divided up fairly between all the members so that we all know that Brian May is an astrophysicist and we can't forget that because it's very important to the story. Right. Uh, but I think there was something that a lot of people just really wanted to see like the Live Aid concert yes. on the big screen. They wanted to hear these songs and if you are a Queen fan, uh, there's obviously something very satisfying about seeing that story of everyone thought they wouldn't make it and you know that bit where they're recording Bohemian Rhapsody and they have all of the bad reviews pop up on screen which was just pure ego in a way that even most manager curated biopics typically aren't and then you have Brian May going off on social media saying you know the critics have always been against us from the earliest days of Queens and we're still showing them and it's like okay what do you think of Brian Singer and it's like oh I've never heard of him like walking away so <laughs> that weird and I think that's also another thing it's like I tried to explain things like the Brian Singer situation to my family and they just yeah. didn't it didn't really register with them they didn't really care I think for general audiences who don't spend all of their time in the kind of hot take trenches stuff like that ultimately doesn't really matter to them and that's obviously right. really disheartening to see because uh, I just I couldn't get over how badly made that film was in so many ways I mean the teeth that they have in Rami Malek's head in that movie um, were you know <laughs> a living a life of their own uh, but none of that bothered people and I was you know I, I will be you're pondering that one until the end of my days, to be honest. Okay. Well, that was, um, that was quite conclusive. You didn't even have any <laughs> thinking time there. That was straight in there. Um, so as on the inverse of that, because we're all about balance here, um, was there a surprising film, a film that you didn't think you'd enjoy, but you ended up really, really enjoying? Yeah, I mean, there was a couple last year that I was really taken by. When I was in Toronto, I saw Can You Ever Forgive Me? And I'd gone in kind of thinking it was going to be sort of quaint biopic where comedic actress goes serious and there really wouldn't be much to it beyond that and I was really bowled over by this really deftly layered textured movie about struggling to be an artist in New York and what it's like being an older gay woman at a time when that community has been ravaged by AIDS in New York and sort of hypocrisies of the publishing industry and their obsession with celebrity and how that takes form. It was just a film that had all of these amazing ideas going on that handled them with such deftness in a way that it didn't hit you over the head with any of the themes. So I was really obsessed with that one. Although if I'm being more honest, the film that I was obsessed with last year that no one else liked and I had no expectations for was Solo. Right, yes. I, I feel like, I think me and like four other critics really, really loved that movie and continue to talk about it. And everyone else is just like, it was fine. It's like, no, I had so much fun at this movie. You don't understand. So that's the only time I've ever gone out and like bought Star Wars related paraphernalia. Like I bought like <laughs> the tie-in books and merchandise and things just for Solo. I think I may have been the only one that ever did. Me are and Ron you, Howard. Are you part of the, uh, the Twitter campaign to make a Solo sequel? Oh, I didn't even know that existed. I will totally be in on that because I would yeah. love to just see more movies of Alden Ehrenreich and Chewbacca like being space pirates, basically. I was obsessed with it. <laughs> yeah, me and my co-host Chris were talking the other day um, about how it was It was surprising. I think it kind of slipped through people because um, everyone was kind of smashed over the face with Star Wars a bit too much, I think. And then this came at the end of it and people just didn't give it any time or space or the attention that it deserved. And I think it's, yeah, I think it's one of the, the finer ones, to be honest. I mean, um, especially of the uh, the actual sort of sequels, it, I think it stands above 
all of those ones. Um, I, mean, I think that The Last Jedi is the greatest artistic achievement, and I do think it is a brilliant film. Uh, there's just something about the kind of ragtag heist nature yes. of Solo that I really love. And I think a lot of people got very weighed down by the behind-the-scenes drama of that film and have now begun to kind of deify what the Lord and Miller cut would have been. And right. Maybe it would have been brilliant, and I have a lot of faith in those guys. I mean, after the Lego movie and Into the Spider-Verse, they can write checks to make whatever the hell they want and I'll put my money down. But I was just so immensely satisfied by what Solo was, even when it kind of hit those expected prequel beats that I didn't feel like it needed. I didn't need to know why his name was Han Solo, for instance. But none of that thing really mattered to me just because the rest of the film was so kinetic and so vibrant for me. And the beautiful cinematography and these actors, and I just had such a great time with it. And I couldn't understand how anyone left that film being kind of nonplussed by it, which a lot of critics were. And I wonder if it had been a Christmas release like Star Wars movies typically are, if that would have helped. Yeah, sort of tie into the um, the good feelings of the season, so to speak. So, um, unfortunately, we're not here to talk about good films. <laughs> I um, apologise in advance. <laughs> so, uh, we used to call this, uh, uh, the, you know, your, your guilty pleasure, but um, we found after about four or five of these, <laughs> no one is in the least bit ashamed <laughs> of those. I think everyone's um, a bit too old and wise now to be ashamed <laughs> of these uh, of the, 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 the uh, film secrets. So now we refer to them as their, their unpopular opinion film of choice. Um, and you chose, how, how do I explain this one? <laughs> the, uh, the, the very interesting Dracula 2000. If true evil cannot die, is there a chance that it can forever be contained? Code decrypted, accessing, security shutting down, cracked. For centuries, a secret has been buried beneath the streets of London. You don't build this kind of security without a gold mine to hide. Something ageless. What the hell is that? The Holy Grail, the Golden Fleece, the Crown Jewels, whatever it is, it's inside. Something powerful. Something beyond your deepest fears. What has happened in there? He's Professor. Who? Draculia. Not Miss Israel. I assure you. There are worse things than death. So much more complicated than our names. Yeah, I have no shame for this whatsoever. Uh, I know it's bad. I can tell you every single reason why it's bad. But as someone who has been, who never got over her teenage vampire obsession and has seen a lot of adaptations of Dracula in particular, yes. I've probably watched this one more than the ones that I think are actually good. <laughs> <laughs> Can you um, give us some uh, pointers as to why you, why you like this film so much? Yeah, so I am generally quite fascinated by adaptation theory in general, particularly when it comes to these kind of big, iconic pieces of public domain material. Uh, and Dracula is kind of one of the 
most popular examples of that, you know, everyone tries to make a Dracula movie. They tried to make it into like an Iron Man style origin superhero movie a few years ago with Dracula Untold. Yes. Uh, but the reason I think that it kind of, that they keep doing it is that there is something about vampirism in particular that's a really flexible metaphor. You can kind of make vampirism a stand-in for anything. It can be, you know, it's all about death or it's about sex or it's about infection. It's about religion. It's about all of these things. And if you look at various adaptations of Dracula, they all kind of hit those beats. Yeah. Uh, and this one actually has a really interesting take on it that I'd legitimately never seen before. I wouldn't say it was executed well, but there was just such staggering potential behind it that I kind of got a wee bit obsessed with it for a while when I found the DVD in my grandmother's collection and then never <laughs> gave her it back. Yeah, I don't know why she has this, or she had it on DVD, because it's now mine. and has it's, been for many years now. It's probably during that period of HMV where it was three for a tenner. Where there was there was always the one film you wanted, and then you ended up buying two other ones <laughs> that you didn't really. Oh, the beautiful days of HMV. Yes, oh, I recently like... <laughs> recently moved and had um, quite a few of my DVDs still in the cellophane from clearly that time. Where it's just right, I may as well pick a third one because there's two things here that I want, and then the, you, you get the third one and it just goes in the box and it's never to be seen again. So um, I'm giving your um your, your nan that break, I think. <laughs> I mean, she has, she's very genre-based in her taste. Anyway, her favorite film is the fourth Alien movie. So she may have genuinely liked this right, movie. I have true. no she idea. She might have done. Uh, but I was just like, I don't know. There was just something about it that I really grabbed onto. I love the idea of taking a really specifically faith-based approach to the Dracula mythos, which yes. none of the other ones do. And it's really not all <laughs> that much in even Bram Stoker's book. You really don't get much of an explanation beyond old ideas of folklore and belief as to why Dracula would be so afraid of Christian iconography. And this one offers an explanation for that. It's daft, <laughs> but it's kind of brilliant at the same time. And I just, I'm amazed that they did it and then packaged it in basically like a sexy teen movie. Yeah. I mean, you're right in the sense that it's, uh, I've never, you never have that explained as to why, why is he so afraid of crosses? Why can I suddenly produce a crucifix and you're like, and uh, <laughs> hide off into the shadows and as i say it, it is an interesting concept i mean they had to kind of um add some additional sort of like silver based which i believe was normally in the, the prevalence of the werewolf film rather than uh the, yeah the vampiric I, don't feel, I don't believe that is in the book i think that is something that is more typically about werewolves um but th that was just one of those sort of twists on it where it's like well i, I can deal with this because actually there's a really terrible even more terrible sequel to this that went straight to DVD. Yes. Uh, and they include like really interesting um, elements about vampires being allergic to mustard seeds. But that's <laughs> actually, but the thing is that is actually Eastern European folklore. Right. Again, it's daft, but you can actually find your roots in that. So it was really interesting that these elements that you just don't see in other vampire movies because you're so used to the steaks and the garlic and the, you know, the, the things that you see all the time that there's, and because people expect them and because genres like this are built on meeting audience expectations, you really don't see a lot of experimentation. Yeah. So the fact that they had this version of the story and they packaged it in a sexy teen movie executive produced by the Weinsteins, was, <laughs> you know, I, I just had so many questions I'll never get answers to. Uh, yeah, so taking a vampire to a restaurant would be quite tricky business these days. And really, so there's no garlic, no mustard seeds. <laughs> I mean, I don't even know if that's even marked on the menu these days. I mean, if you've got an allergy, you're fine. But if you're a vampire, they're underrepresented in uh, in the, the food labeling industry, I think. 
Well, there is a moment in the in Dracula Two Thousand where um, they pl- they do a play on the famous line from the Lugosi film, where instead of "I never drink wine," it's "I never drink coffee." And funnily enough, it doesn't land with the same impact because, like, bless Gerard Butler, he's many things, but I don't know if he's necessarily threatening. <laughs> yeah, it, it seemed like a strange piece of casting, really. Like... <laughs> I, I feel like that casting is because he was cheap and because he was pretty. <laughs> like um, that, Ger- This is pre-300, pre-Phantom of the Opera, Jared Butler. This is when yes. he is sort of just becoming a thing. Um, actually, if you ever watch the DVDs, <laughs> extra features on this, which of course I have, there is a moment where they're showing the scene of him like bursting out of the water and they shout cut and he literally shouts, oh, for fuck's sake, in the most Glaswegian accent ever. <laughs> and it, it just, it warms my heart. Just like on a pure patriotism level. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, you see, during this film, he doesn't read. I mean, there is an attempt to hide the accent, but it does come through quite a few times, even through the teeth and the everything else. There's a, there's, there's definitely a, um, a Scottish twang to his Transylvanian. Honestly, there is a like a solid game of accent roulette to be played in this entire movie because <laughs> Christopher Plummer is kind of doing like. British Transylvanian something. This is something that was really sort of jumped out at, is that there's no one here, not since Highlander, has there been so many wrong people doing <laughs> the wrong accent. So we have like uh, Jennifer Asperito, uh, Esperito? Esposito. Esposito doing uh, an English accent to begin with. But once she becomes a vampire, she just goes straight back to uh, her Latin roots. <laughs> yeah, basically the moment any woman becomes a vampire in this movie, they basically like turn into an extra in a Rihanna music video. <laughs> uh, which, once again, is another thing that I like. a lot of these movies do, which is basically vampire equals sex. So you immediately become basically just like a complete sex fiend in these movies. And also yes. they, just, they completely play up the idea that like when Jared Butler walks into a room in this film, every woman, including everyone in the Virgin Megastore, get it, just like dr- literally drops what they're doing to follow him around like a lovesick puppy. And it's just so pathetic and I love it. How- how much money do you think Virgin Megastore paid for the constant advertisement during this film? Oh, I've no idea. But the thing is as well, that is that was a real Virgin Megastore that was in New Orleans and this was filmed before Katrina. So, because I have friends who went, used to go to that store before, uh, right. before Hurricane Katrina hit. And it's like, no, it was actually like that. And they did play like weird BDSM style videos on their screens all the time. <laughs> that was weird. I didn't get that. I think that was mostly because what this another film this reminds me of another terrible vampire movie I've seen too many times is Queen of the Damned yep. which is the sequel to Interview with the Vampire and in that list as a rock star but in the book he's supposed to be like Jim Morrison but because the film is early 2000s he's basically new metal he's like a lead singer of Korn and there's a lot of like <laughs> new metal in this movie because that was what the kids were into yeah the, the scene when he's walking through and it, um, it, it is almost pop video-esque where the, all the the, uh, the young girls are swooning at his feet as he's walking through not a single um, boy in the shop buying anything by the way which I thought was quite interesting this is a, a, a virgin megastore only for ladies it appears <laughs> and it also seems to be one where no one is actually doing a whole lot of work because there is a moment where our lead character who's not Mina Harker but she totally is just like <laughs> drops a bunch of CDs on the ground and then no one ever picks them up and she's like can you take over my shift for a while and no one asks any <laughs> questions like yeah. it just seems you can come and go from this shop as you please which would have been my dream job as a teenager it, it may have been the first instance of a zero hour contract on a TV screen <laughs> that we've ever seen <laughs> the, the, you mentioned there like the, uh, the, the naming of the characters because they're all kind of they, they either share the initials or the first name of someone from actual literal 
Dracula. So you have Lucy and you say like not Mina, but Mary. Um, Van Helsing is, I, I don't even know what his first name is because at one point he's called Matthew and then someone else later calls him uh, Gabriel. He has, seems to have many names. So that they do have, and like uh, his business is called Carfax from, I think the asylum, is it the Carfax asylum? Yeah, the Carfax Abbey is, is, is uh, the place that Dracula buys his property in, which is another thing I love about the book, which is this great lord of evil who is basically coming to London to destroy upper society, still does all of his property deals legit. Like yeah. He's still investing in London property in like a really serious way. He's the location, location, location of Eastern European vampires. <laughs> I mean, you, you can be a vampire, you can be hell bent on destroying the world, but you know, good um, property management just makes sense. Because <laughs> you, you never Vlad, know. Vlad doesn't. is looking for a lovely castle with a large garden <laughs> for him to hide all of his coffins in. That, that was something that surprised me as well is the the opening of this film uh so I, I guess in a way of to try and sort of introduce dracula they have like a heist at the start so um the the, the sort of gang um are robbing van helsing and they, they go into his they, they find this big old vault uh well they know there's big old vaults there they go in expecting to find like artwork and gold and you know money and instead they find a coffin and rather than just going jesus this was a, a bust. <laughs> they go, let's take the coffin and then try and open the coffin. It's still expecting there to be, no one puts anything apart from a dead body in a coffin. I don't think, I don't think it's a thing. It's not like a safe It box. is the most tenuous plot thread ever, which is basically, if you really wanted to hide something valuable, you'd put it in a coffin, wouldn't you? Surrounded yeah. by giant spikes that have just killed at least one of our friends. <laughs> like, none of them really question this all that much. No. Uh, which is just the glorious moment of like, even this early on, like no one cares about the plot. What is fascinating, the uncredited rewrites on this movie were done by Aaron Kruger, who wrote a bunch of Transformers movies, uh, including the new Dumbo movie, and also Scott Derrickson from Doctor Strange. Yeah. Which, like, I would put a credit on this. I wouldn't be ashamed of this. This would be so up my alley. But I've seen, once again, I've seen far too many bad Dracula movies. I'm grading this thing on a very low curve. I've seen Dario Argento's Dracula movie. <laughs> okay, well, that is quite low. It's in 3D and there's a giant CGI praying mantis. But does it have um, Danny Masterson flicking a <laughs> leech at his own eye? I, don't know, I still don't know why he did this after he managed to open the coffin. And now they're presented with the evidence of the his, of his own eyes that shit it's not full of gold it is actually just a dead body <laughs> in a coffin with leeches on it and what am i going to do with those leeches oh i know i'm going to flick on my own eye um and then it didn't seem to have any real effect apart from to annoy him to the point of um getting headbutted then by dracula in a very it's, it's quite bumbling <laughs> i don't i don't i don't know why they're, they're not smart criminals at all <laughs> although my favorite response is when dracula wakes up and is suddenly jenner butler with fabulous curly hair he just holds out his hand to jennifer esposito he doesn't need to say anything i think the implication is that she's supposed to be like hypnotized by him in a way which is yeah. in the book but really it does just look like well you're a lot hotter than these guys i might as well <laughs> yeah i mean this is all plain what could possibly go wrong <laughs> There's no concerns about this forever. Another thing I love about this film is just like how occasionally they start firing off one-liners like they're in the Adam West Batman series. Because there's a moment where uh, Omar Epps is trying to kill Johnny Lee Miller and he brings out a, a cross and he goes, sorry, dude, I'm an atheist. And it turns into a stake and his response is, God loves you anyway. 
which yeah. should be accompanied by like a pow bam ziff <laughs> if, if it was on Batman. Um, but there's, the thing is, so much of the movie is really self-serious, but then there are obviously these like rewrite one-liners that were probably added by Scott Derrickson. Yeah. Where they do try to jazz up. There's a moment where Johnny Lee Miller very proudly screams, never ever fuck with an antique dealer. I don't, I don't think that's the thing, though, is it? As far as I know, it isn't. But, you know, if Johnny Lee Miller was on, like, a CBS procedural where he was playing, like, a badass antique dealer with, with knives, I would watch that show every week. I mean, that's basically elementary, to be honest. Yeah, yes, yeah, true. I mean, and I've I watched that, so. Antiques Road Trip, and <laughs> I reckon I could take at least a couple of them. I mean... <laughs> Not at once, obviously, but like if they were in a, an orderly sort of kung fu line of attackers, I think I'd get through two or three of them before I got taken down by one of the younger ones. <laughs> Honestly, Bargain Hunt being populated by the Legions of the Undead would just explain a lot. Yes. Now, actually, now, now all those antiques road trip um, now make sense. The road shows the background, people just sort of milling <laughs> listlessly in the background are just the undead. It makes perfect sense. You want to Bruce's knowing smile and every week of Antiques Roadshow is just revealing so much more to me than I ever thought it would. <laughs> um, I did like the fact that it was Dracula 2000 in America, Dracula 2001 in Europe, because I'm guessing that's when it was launched. There was probably a delay. And they thought, this is silly. We can't call it Dracula 2000. It's a year out of date now. So we're going to rebrand it Dracula 2001. It is one of my ultimate dreams that one day I will have like an original VHS copy of Dracula 2001 just to, to <laughs> complete my collection. I need to, it must be out there somewhere and I really want it. I can see all over the cover, but I can't find any other reason for this, but um, it's, a, it's a Wes Craven Presents. Um, did, did he have anything to do with this at all? As far as I know, he didn't. I think this was like a favour or something. I really don't know because he was you know, a big by this point in time. time that he was, um, you know, by this point in time, Wes Craven is still a big name, but he's, you know, he's kind of made his biggest movies by this point in time. So yeah. I really don't know what he kind of gets out of this. And Patrick uh, Lucier, who's the, the director of this, I think he was uh, his editor or something like that for a long time. He edited Wes Craven's New Nightmare, uh, Vampire in Brooklyn, Scream 2, Scream. So yeah, he's an editor. So clearly I think it might have just been like, as a, a favour or something. Which, <laughs> like when you know, a, an author starts writing. Oh yeah, there have been much weirder favours made. I mean, I think the, the other weird credit on this is the fact that it is technically a Miramax Dimension film, which means that the Weinsteins have to have watched this multiple times before it went out. <laughs> and yet it still went out. <laughs> Apparently the, the what Weinstein's bought is simply because of the name. They, they liked the fact that it's called <laughs> for 2000 and that was why they bought it. It was like, this script's terrible. It went, yeah, but look at the name. It's Dracula 2000, man. Who's not going to watch that? <laughs> Honestly, like, that is the most non-harassment-related piece of Weinstein news that you could ever, you know, that, that's the most Weinstein There's... thing you could ever think of. It's like, he bought a movie based on the title. Uh, last summer, uh, when I was doing my master's degree, I was uh, working in my university's archives, and I was helping compile this archive, that, uh, um, this former film production manager had given us of all the films that him and his dad had worked on and one of the films that he'd worked on this man's filmography was really weird but one of the films collections he gave us was when he worked on the fourth highlander movie so we found whole boxes full of memos from and to harvey and bob which i was completely obsessed with and really wanted to take but obviously wasn't allowed to but it was just really fascinating to see these notorious names attached to a film a fourth highlander movie right you realize oh god you guys you know 
there's this is another thing we should remember about the Weinstein legacy. They released a lot of really shit films. <laughs> they did do a lot of shit films, an awful lot. I'm just reading actually. I was had the IMDb page flagged up, and uh, the tagline for this film was the most seductive evil of all time has now been unleashed in ours. So there, Gerard Gerard (laughs) Butler is the most seductive evil of all time. I mean, I'm sure he still believes that. Uh, I don't know if you've seen all of the, uh, the, the posters and the TV and the cinema ads and stuff or the, um, I think it's like car rentals company or something that he's now doing work with. Yeah, because well, there are posters the all day. around Dundee, and it is very, very strange that he's like got the Mona Lisa stare wherever you go in Dundee now. <laughs> Just there, staring out of you everywhere. Yeah, honestly, like his career is one of those weird things that I'm oddly fascinated by. We actually covered this on an episode of my podcast. Uh, this idea of just him being not really anyone's favorite actor, but there is still something very watchable about his particular brand of schlock. Like yes. he's basically making the kind of films that would have been made by maybe not even Van Damme. He would have been making like Chuck Norris films basically. Uh, and you'd think that's something that there isn't really a market for anymore. And yet he's still releasing them and they're still most of them making reasonable money when they're not gods of Egypt, basically. Gods of Egypt is one that we've covered and it was uh, yes, it was a, a particular... <laughs> Uh, of course it was a point for us i think rather than low or high point it was just yeah it was just a, another one of those um Jared Butler is a a firm favorite of ours on the podcast and um as i said we've only done a couple of his films um but we we have quote his uh, line from um oh one of the fallen films i can't remember which one was the first one where it, yeah after running through the streets he just uh grabs a drink of water guns it down and just like goes up thirsty as fuck (laughs) it's just such an out of place line that um it's almost like they just gone yeah we're gonna leave that in there he's that's just Jared butler being a bit thirsty i feel like he's trying to kind of establish himself as like a jason statham type someone who has a really distinctive type because first of all the adverts for like the car rental company he's doing are very based on that um, but every now and then he does something where you're like, oh yeah, you actually are an actor and can do pretty decent work. Because I was at the Glasgow Film Festival and saw The Vanishing, which yep. is a film with him and Peter Mullen where they go crazy in a lighthouse. Right. Uh, and it's actually like, it's a very straightforward, you know, pot boiler style thriller where he's actually acting and is actually Scottish in it. And it was one of those ones where I was actually very much enjoyed it for what it was and for the work that he was doing it. He's still, you know, Peter Mullen still acts circles around him, but he acts circles around all of us. Uh, but it's just fascinating that now and then he does a film like that and then goes back to doing, like, how many Olympus Has Fallen movies are we into now? Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I like about things like this is because he's still just a jobbing actor who isn't really a thing yet. Like, 300 is still a couple years away um, as is Fan of the Opera, which is just terrible. I, I was tempted to do that, but that's not really guilty pleasure. That's just, like, pure masochism on my part. <laughs> Because I also have a thing about Phantom of the Opera adaptations, but Dracula's the great love for me. What would you be your um, absolute, like, pinnacle? I mean, if this isn't it, by the way, <laughs> I'm, 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 you do need to service. This might be the pinnacle of your Dracula love. Um, is there a, a Dracula film that, that, that trumps this one? Oh, Lord. I mean, the, the Dario Argento one is truly horrendously bad because it's one of his later films that seems to have been made on a budget of, like, £50. But it does have Udo Kier as Van Helsing which is always a benefit. Um, but it seems it just seems to have been made by a man who was like being forced to make a film under duress. Uh, there are some, you know, the thing about this is because there are so many versions of Dracula and so many different ways to do it, uh, it's kind of, 
easy to do it really bad and easy to do it really well, but most people kind of fall in the middle. Um, but yeah. we've sort of given up on schlocky films, sadly. I mean, Dracula Untold was mostly boring. I didn't really get any enjoyment out of that. There is a BBC version from 2006, uh, and Dracula's played by Mark Warren from The Good Wife and Hustle. But that version completely plays up the idea of vampirism being a metaphor for syphilis, or actually literally syphilis, because basically their version of that story is that... Um, not Jonathan Harker. Um, so um, Lucy's husband has syphilis that he has been right. born with, and he's played by Dan Stevens pre Downton Abbey as well. So he's a real weasel, uh, and he's been told if you bring this strange Eastern European aristocrat to England, he will find a cure for you, and it is just Dracula, and he doesn't provide a cure. And he, when literally asked why are you here, and his response is, "I like your women." <laughs> and it's a really weird adaptation that I feel like was written basically because they thought that was such a great metaphor they had to go with it. It's mostly kind of dull, but it does have this like really interesting take on it. It's like this film basically, the idea that you would play up this really specific religious metaphor. Yes. Then kind of want to cloak it in something a little safer and more approachable. Um, is both really fascinating and kind of disappointing because I wonder if there's a version of this script or a version of the story where they really dig into like the idea of like bastardized Christianity and how it would tie to this really poisonous attitude of vampirism. Because if you really want to dig into this, this could get very anti-Semitic because there's a long history of vampirism and vampire-like tendencies being tied to anti-Semitic images of Jewish people and, and the Jewish faith. Right. Yeah. Uh, if you've ever seen, I mean, if you've ever seen Nosferatu, the original one, that image of um, Count Orlock, their Dracula stand-in as this rat-like vermin is com- is completely lifted from anti-Semitic propaganda of Germany in the twenties. Yeah, it does look incredibly similar. And really, like, I mean, I'm glad that we don't do that. I I would love to see a version of that that understands like the prickliness of that and a way to dig into the layers of it. I think would be really fascinating. Uh, this film isn't it, obviously. No, no, this, it almost sounds like this film would be it, but it, it's not because um, it, it turns out that um, Dracula was living for a long time. I, lo- I love the little library scene where they're going. So, like you know, Van Helsing, the her father has been you know, trying to look for years for, for the reason behind this, and they just pop off to the little library and the 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 church that they're in and think that they're going to, they're going to find it. <laughs> they're just like, surely if we look through a book, I mean, these are books. I mean, it could be in any one of these books. Let's have a look at the book and see if it tells us what Dracula is and a way of killing Dracula. Um, and it doesn't. So anyway, they, they find out that he's Judas, Judas Iscariot, um, but not by any research. He just tells them fundamentally at the end, he just gives her a little bite, which lets him see that um, he's Judas Iscariot who after betraying Christ, tried to hang himself, but the rope broke and then he became a vampire. Is that right? Yeah, there's no explanation for it. He's basically, it's just like something, something guilt, something, something curse. Yeah. And that's really kind of it. But also, like, he seems to be having a really great time as a vampire for most of this movie. And then yeah. all of a sudden he's come down with horrifying guilt and this sense of betrayal that he's accomplished. But most of the time he's just like having sex with really pretty women. Are trying on the, on to the ceiling really as well. On I the mean, ceiling. <laughs> he, he takes it all over the place in that room. I mean, <laughs> he does not confine himself to the normal bed area. He's um, up the walls, on the ceiling. <laughs> He's having a, a whale of a time. But yes, but then obviously he probably ties into the Catholic guilt thing after that. He then has to feel really bad about himself. I do appreciate that the, the moment he has sex with uh, with this version of Lucy the place where they live immediately becomes like a haunted gothic manor with lots of billowing curtains. Yeah. I wonder if that was just like a side effect of it. (laughs) 
<laughs> You've all got lovely flowing nighties now and every curtain in your house will flow like this. They, they did go into the Bride of Dracula's quite hard um, during the New Orleans scene where um, the three uh, women that he's uh, bitten, so you've got a seven of nine, Jerry Ryan, can't see it again, Jennifer Esposito, and Vitamin C, who I've never heard of, but it's apparently a singer as well as an She actress. was like a um, kind of vaguely teeny boppy sort of that age of singer. I think she did a lot of work with like Nickelodeon and things. Um, but just the fact that she's best known as Vitamin C and then is now playing essentially Lucy Weston, right? Although it's Westerman in this version. Westerman, yeah. Is just, of course it happens. It is like the grab bag of 2000, this film, or 1999, 2000, in the best way. And also Nathan Fillion is a priest in this movie. Yes, he pitched up as a priest as a sort of, I thought he'd have a bigger part. I thought the priest might do something because <laughs> um, he doesn't does he? he kind of like has a he has an uncomfortable chat where um he, he he just feels he just looks a bit awkward and then doesn't come back again after that yeah this is pre-firefly nathan fillion as well so this is him definitely in that jobbing actor phase of you know work is work and i will do this tiny role that seems like it's being built up to be something more and then they just drop it completely and i wonder if there was that was a script edit or a or if he was added later or if there's just a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor that didn't make it yeah um, because there's just a, there's a lot of that feeling in this film of there seems to, there should have been more of this at some point the fact that it's even a hundred minutes is kind of a miracle because this feels like the sort of thing that should have been cut down to about 84 yes it is one of those films where i sort of got halfway through and then had a look at the progress bar and i was like ah oh, jesus <laughs> <laughs> please god no. um but it, it picked up pace a little bit i guess at the end there at the end, and so uh, we find out he's Judas Iscariot. She works out the best way to kill him for good would be to hang him successfully this time, not like the brokey rope version the first time around, and let him burn in the sunshine, which seemed quite like a decent plan made up on the spot at the time. Curiously, he forgives her or withdraws his vampiriness from her at the end. Which is a thing that he can do all of a sudden. All of a sudden. Uh, <laughs> but I, but I it's weird know. that that happens because in the book, the original point is that if you kill the maker, then everyone who he, ha- he or she has turned will turn back. And that's why they need to do it to save Mina. Because yeah. if she feeds in, she's kind of gone for good. In this version, you think, well, if he's going to die anyway, will that release her? But then he has to say it beforehand, which hmm. is a new rule that I've never seen in these things before. Yeah. The idea that it's like a verbal promise more than like an infection that, that it is usually categorized as yeah. is a choice. Just, I release you, then off you go. Oh, thanks. Cheers for that. <laughs> I mean, what do you say to someone, a vampire that releases you from their hold? Is, you know, do, do you thank them? Do you, what's the, uh, what's the social etiquette in these the situations? Well, according to this one, you just cut the corpse back down and put it back in the coffin. <laughs> That's the we don't see that scene, but the coffin does go back. The coffin goes back because, like, um, in the um, quite quite a few of these types of films have this where they go, do you know what? We, we might want to do a sequel. Let's not, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's uh, <laughs> let's leave ourselves open. So there's like a a, a kind of schlocky mouth o- mouth over mouth over voiceover. <laughs> 20 seconds um, at the end where they just go, oh, I'll put him back in the coffin. He might come back. He might not. I don't know. It depends whether or not this film makes any money or not. <laughs> and the thing is, there are actual like straight-to-DVD sequels of this film. There's two of them. Uh, I've only seen the first one in which... <clears throat> 
Jenner Butler has been replaced by some guy that was on Coronation Street, but then also <laughs> Roy Scheider turns up. Oh, wow. To re- he's like this Christopher Plummer of this version, I guess. It's just like, you don't have to do much. It's okay. <laughs> we need an old savant, quick. <laughs> Stat. <laughs> it is a very strange movie, but this is the one that has like the mustard seed element to it, which once again is really fascinating. Clearly, the, it's the same director and the same writer. So clearly they had ideas. I just don't know if they were really uh, the right people to to execute them necessarily. And they clearly also went through the original book and went, what didn't we use the first time? What can we go? Oh, look, mustard seeds. We didn't mention that. We'll have that. For the oh, I also have to point out, I'm now just looking at the Wikipedia page. Roy Scheider returns for the third one and is joined by um, Rutger Hauer. <laughs> that's got, who's playing Count Dracula. That's got tax bill written all over it. That one has. Yeah. <laughs> There's an alimony payment that he missed. That's what's here. Yeah. The, the Nicolas Cage version of acting, where it's just like, oh, yeah, I'll do it. I need to pay my tax off. I need to know what like sort of personal transformation you go through where you turn from Gerard Butler into Rutger Hauer. Like, what what is the process there? How does that? Well, I, I think you get hung from a neon um, cross and then burn for three minutes. I think is <laughs> the, the the rough way of uh, going from uh, yeah, a, a young. Who looks incredibly young as well? A young Gerard Butler to uh, a it must be an incredibly old Rutger Hauer as well. Not even like prime Rutger Hauer. We're talking fifties, sixties Rutger Hauer, maybe even older. How I mean, old that just is adds Rutger to the sort of wonderful like straight to DVD, you know, on Sci-Fi Channel at two in the morning quality that they seem to be going for. You know, I hardly really support that. I'm a sucker for like terrible. <clears throat> Triple vampire movies in general, but if you go like go around satellite channels at that kind of time in the evening, you get some yeah. really cracking ones. There is a Dracula Three Thousand, which has nothing to do with any of these movies, but it is set in space. You, well, I'm sold. And I also, Udo Kier is in that one too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, just like there's a man that just needs to be in more vampire movies. Yeah, there, 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 there's there's just not enough vampire movies apparently. <laughs> I think okay, is the, the feeling I'm getting from you is that everyone needs to have more vampire movies in their life. I, I once I heartily support that decision. I am waiting for the moment where New Universal try to do their Dark Universe again because you know that they're going to try and do another Dracula movie. Um, <clears throat> it couldn't possibly be any more, any less interesting than Dracula Untold, mind you. I, 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 mean, I would rather the, that someone just adapted the book. This thing is actually there are very few adaptations of Dracula that just do the book. The closest you kind of get to that is, well, the Bell of the Ghosty film, but even then it makes some big changes. And then uh, Francis Ford Coppola's one, but that still adds a romantic subplot. Yeah, yeah, they, they have to sort of try and pet it out a bit. Um, I, I guess the worst thing that you can be is entirely forgettable. And I, I know I've seen Dracula Untold, but I couldn't tell you a single thing about it, I don't think. Which is... Yeah, I mean, to me, the most interesting thing about that film is clearly the, the influences for that film had nothing to do with vampire movies. It was like, we just want Iron Man so that we can launch a franchise for this thing. And then even when they did try to launch a franchise again with The Mummy, they just pretended that this one didn't even exist. Yes. So whenever they make their next Dark Universe film, we're going to pretend that The Mummy and Dracula Untold don't exist. The, the Mummy needs to exist simply so that we can watch the um, trailer with all the sound taken out. <laughs> which is just one of the greatest things I've ever seen. It is beautiful. Honestly, that is another one of those films where I was, I didn't expect it to be good, but I at least wanted something on like the watchable schlock level of Dracula 2000. And then it is just this really strange kind of Tom Cruise vanity project where the most exciting part of it is that when Phil, is when um, Russell Crowe turns into Hyde, he basically turns into Phil Daniels in the Parklife video. <laughs> <laughs> he does. 
<laughs> like, if it had all been, it had all been that, I would have been like perfectly delighted by it. But alas, that didn't happen. But that trailer is just one of the great things. It's and I would actually, love the whole movie of that. <laughs> it's kind of all together because um, our last guest uh, did Van Helsing, and that has a um, hastily tagged on Jacqueline Hyde at the start of that. Um, and it, the, the mummy obviously has its own version of the Jack and I just just quickly popped in there um, for little or no real benefit. I do have a soft spot for Van Helsing as well, because um, at least on that one, Stephen Summers is very aware that he's making schlock. Because yes. you've got like Richard Roxburgh in that movie is hamming it up to near unfathomable levels, and everyone has really beautiful hair, and the effects are all terrible, and everyone is talking like the Count from Sesame Street. But like everyone seems to know what film they're in in that movie. Yeah. Whereas in the Mummy, they do genuinely believe they're making like the undead Mission Impossible. Yeah, it's, 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 it's just too much. I, I think that's probably one of my um. I'd like to see a Dracula movie where Dracula just spoke normally. <laughs> It'd be like, you know, the whole, you know, I'd say Count Dracula from, the, the Count from Sesame Street seems to be <laughs> in most people's and like uh, Gary Oldman's massively. I mean, it's, it's a great film, but it's hugely over the top. It's, it's, all, it's all a bit much. I mean, you know. <laughs> I mean, I, li- I will say that I like that about the Coppola film because that's the closest I think any adaptation comes to capturing how, weird and feverish and kind of hallucinogenic the book actually is because like yes. the effects in that movie the costumes that just real sense that everything is going to explode at any moment is actually really close to the book and we know a lot of other adaptations don't get i will be curious to see how the upcoming bbc dracula does because i really don't like stephen moffat but i do love the fact that they've got clay's bang from the square playing dracula yeah that should be interesting I hope they keep his Danish accent. I don't want him to be doing like full Transylvanian. You know he's gonna. You know <laughs> there's gonna be a uh, 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 one uh, uh, two kind of moment at some point. Um, yeah, it's it's not gonna. They, 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 people just can't. It's like being the Joker. You have to you have to go big or go home. There's no there's no in betweenies. I don't think with the Dracula's these days. It's almost like doing an Elvis impersonation now. You can't go too big. <laughs> There's no such thing as too big. You can go the full, you know, don't go full Dracula. Um, okay, any final thoughts on Dracula 2000? Any, anything you could really let people listening know to sell them, to move them into getting this out of the, the bargain bin and popping it on? I mean, it is just one of those films that is on such a really precise level of schlock that may appeal to me and only me. So I kind of have a hard time being like, yeah, you should all definitely watch this. Whereas something like Van Helsing, I think, is a little more accessible in that way. I do think you should watch it just to understand why it was really easy to hire Jared Butler to be in terrible movies for a long time. And <laughs> so um, see if you can see the exact moment in the film where the check clears and Christopher Plummer realizes he doesn't have to be in this movie anymore. <laughs> it's beautiful. Yeah, apparently uh, bless, he didn't have to die in that Plummer. scene. He didn't have to die in that scene. He actually just committed sort of like yeah, cinematographic suicide. And it's like, <laughs> you got five more scenes. Like, no, nah, I'm under the bed, mate. I'm, you, you didn't see me. I'm, I'm done. I'm done for the day. Perfect. Get me okay. back to my trailer. Um, I, I agree with you. Yeah, I think this it, it did, did present some interesting ideas I hadn't seen for Dracula films before. The the whole Judas Iscariot thing, um, trying to excuse away the, the 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 fear of the cross and the, the Christian iconology. I, I did enjoy that, so that was good. I did enjoy the heisty bit at the beginning. It did feel a bit like it was about to break into full comedy at one point. A bit of dead and loving it coming through at one point. So yeah. Um, Thank you for making me watch this, I guess, <laughs> is what I'm trying to say. 
Okay, and then so funny. Um, where can we find you online if people want to um, get a taste of your writing and your your podcasts? Uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Kaylian. That's uh, C E I L I D H A N N. It's supposed to be the Gaelic version of my name. It's not. Uh, I write for Pajiba.com. I'm on ScreenRant.com. I'm on Sci-Fi.com under the Fangirls section, and you can download our podcast, The Hollywood Read, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, well, thank you very much for coming and visiting me in the bunker, Kaylee. Um, you're free to leave now. Unfortunately, I have to stay here and, and edit, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you, you have to stay and avoid the vampires again. I have to stay and avoid the vampires. At least I know now that a, a, a simple cross will do me good and some silver. And just avoiding Virgin Megastore, apparently. Yeah, like the workers. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thanks very much. So you challenged me to a top five. I challenged you to a top five sequels that were never made. Here's the top five. (laughs) Here's the top five. So those who listen to this podcast on a regular basis will know that what we do is talk about critically panned movies. Mm. But with this podcast, we talk about some other stuff. Um, good it's, stuff. It's our way of um, geeking out, I guess, would you say? It's our chance to have an opinion about something. So I've chosen my top five films that have not had a sequel. But made, should have done. But should have done. Okay. Should have, could have, would have. And these are in no particular order. I like Yours all. are never in a particular well, order. I like them all. See? Shitting on your parade. I like them all. Yeah. Take that, you bastard. <laughs> right. <laughs> let's, get, let's do this shit. Right, go. So in at number five. Good start. Napoleon Dynamite. Oh. Now, listen. <laughs> this was released in 2004, directed by Jared Hess, and starring John Hader, the great John Hader, who did a yep. couple of movies after Napoleon Dynamite and then has disappeared subsequently. I only ever saw one, and he did basically a Napoleon Dynamite impression in it, and that yeah. was the only reason worth watching the film. I'm like 100% parched. Can I get a cooler or something? A cooler? The Napoleon Dynamite, I tried to do a quote there for you, and it couldn't come out quick enough, um, is instantly, is a quotable classic, isn't it? Ah, oh, stunning film. And I never th- I didn't think I would like it, because it didn't look like, I hadn't like got into these movies, these kind of little independent no, well, comedies. It was one of the first kind of this kind that I'd seen. It's an MTV film as well, which yeah. didn't bode well when it came out. I was like, oh God, an MTV. But it's got a great soundtrack. I remember just guffawing all the way through this film. It never lost any of its charm. And I still get highly motivated when I hear the Penguin Cafe Orchestra music for a found harmonium. Yeah, It's yeah. a great bit of music. Yeah. But the character's amazing. His family are amazing. Every scene in that film is just bonkers and brilliant. I love the film. I just think it, it, that character needed another vehicle it needed more legs it needed the thing is as well is, is the length of time doesn't matter because we can just make him an adult now and because he's still going to be weird and yeah awkward and brilliant i just would have liked to have seen him just doing everyday stuff you know like trying when he when he gets getting a job, job. And, <laughs> and you know getting his chapstick and stuff like that um oh. great great film and just a shame it just didn't have legs and it's a cult classics now sure that's got to happen still that's got to happen I doubt it I mean so, John Hedder's not busy um, no he's not he's I'm sure not. he's not shooting a Blades of Glory sequel he's got an identical twin wow mm-hmm. so that was number five <laughs> okay number four. Oh, I approve of number five just in case you thank think. you number I will commission it 
Thank you. Number four, District Nine. Oh, yeah. Uh, released in 2009, directed by the great Neil Blom- Blomkamp. Although I suppose the great Neil Blomkamp might be a bit of a stretch. He's Blomkamp. kind of had a couple of failures. Uh, yeah, it's two films after that were very, so obvious in yeah. their political undertoning. Um, it just made it. I don't know, jarring. Yeah. But um, starring Charlto Copley, who's gone on to do other stuff, and it's kind of his, his, one of his main muses, I guess, in his films. Mm. But um, I just loved this film. It was absolutely brilliant, based on like, his YouTube short film that he'd made. Um, a lot of the hits and, and sort of beats off that short film are carried over into like the, the, the feature-length yeah. movie. Um it's got great creature effects that are done on a, on a tiny budget. The storylines and everything about it's gritty. You could almost, when you watch it, you can almost taste the sand when you're watching it. Do you know what I mean? Taste the prawn. Dusty the prawn, you fucking prawn. <laughs> Fuck you, prawn. And um, the political under, undertones of it all, the, everything about it, the asylum seekers and everything, it's absolutely amazing. And in the end, if you remember, he, he accidentally gets uh, ill or scratched or infected. And yes. Starts to turn into a, a prawn. A prawn itself. Uh, Christopher, Christopher, calm down, man. Calm down, you <laughs> fucking prawn. But it had, it was brutal movie. It was brutal. Uh, really hard to watch, but um, I absolutely loved it. And there's no reason why this can't be redone. Oh, not redone, but... Not redone. Uh, but uh, have a lovely... I don't know, I don't know what, where it would go, but I could just see the story evolving. Yeah, is this there's certainly scope there? I mean, they could uh, they could do the classic crocodile Dundee two, and um, go back to the prawn planet, and then the humans are then yeah yeah maybe know, they bring some the back. under the underclasses. So that's number four. You're welcome. Number, number four. <laughs> number three, I've got Attack the Block. Oh yeah. So this is not the Ooh. first time Attack the Blocks come it's up in, in one of my uh, top fives or one of your top fives. No, you, you, you chose it for a time displacement to the Victorian era. That's correct, mistaken. I did. 2009, directed by the great Joe Cornish, one of my man heroes. John Boyega, Jodie Whittaker, Nick Frost starred it. Um, there was talk of a, of a, of a, like a sequel. I think Joe Cornish kind of fantasised about mm. you know uh, how this would evolve and famously I remember an interview he mentioned you know a scene where you could see jo, um, John Boyega's character riding a riot a police riot horse holding a samurai sword through the streets of London right, right. as these aliens you know launched another attack on the city or whatever um, but yeah the characters are fantastic fantastic and, and the just the storyline and the budget and everything just you know on paper just oh, this 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 would definitely work. Yes. And I think he's the best director to do it. Uh, he's a really, really good director, I believe, uh, from what I've seen. I've seen one of his films, and it was great. And You've uh, probably seen Moist, uh, well, uh, as a director, I suppose. He's a writer. He's done Tintin. Yeah, no, he's fantastic. Uh, really underrated. Um, but yeah, I'd love to see those characters again. And those monsters are proper scary. They were interesting as well. A real good creature feature. You I know? need to watch that film again. It's been ages. It's brilliant. It holds up long. today. They were they had glow-in-the-dark teeth, didn't they? I would commission your first one, commission your second one, and commission your third one. Excellent. You're on a roll. Number two, then. Film number two is Solo, a Star Wars story. It's an interesting thing you mentioned, this one. I watched this again last night, Mm. and I looked over to my wife, like this, 
<laughs> look at me, Chris, look at me. <laughs> I mean, this film is underrated mm. and it's such a shame that it came out during a period of such malaise for Star Wars because the two offbeat uh, Star Wars films, uh, we often talk about our love of Rogue One. Rogue One and this are better than the other films. I believe they've got something about them which the new sequels have The only problem is after watching Fleabag is I can't detach the two characters anymore. Yeah, Phoebe Waller-Bridge is fantastic. Um, directed by Ron Howard, famously there was obviously the, the director switch up uh, during switch the room. film. Uh, 2018 with uh, Aidan Ehrenreich and Rudy Harrelson and, and many other great great characters. Obviously it had a ma- an amazing cast. great set pieces in the film as yeah. well. Well, as you said, this was badly... I didn't even go to the cinema. This is the only Star Wars film I never went to the cinema to see. Such was the malaise at the time. Oh, no, I saw it because I'm a completionist. I was just like, man, I'll wait. But well, I, you know, I just couldn't get to it, to be fair. It's underrated, as you say. It was badly placed in terms of its release. It would have been fantastic to have it on a Christmas release, uh, let the dust settle from um, The Last Jedi. Yeah, give or, it a year. Um, and, yeah, it, uh, it's a, it's got quite a dark... Uh, palette to it I think it could have been a bit lighter and a bit brighter it's, it's quite there's some dark. unnecessary character deaths that's for sure yeah and I mean there's a little bit of fridging as well here and there with some of the characters that die without any real reason um, Chewbacca's fantastic he's one of my favourite characters and the and the the chemistry between you know the the, the, uh, the new actor Aelin and Daenerys uh <laughs> Yeah, I was talking about no between them and uh, him and Chewbacca oh, yes. on screen. He nails that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, he, he made a very good hand solo. Yeah, it's like it only took a couple of minutes before you were you were sold and um, and you were believing that an elephant could fly. So wrong film. And and at the end, we do get like a real major setup to a sequel. Yeah, yeah. All the bits and pieces start falling into place. And there's I don't know why I don't know why, but um, apparently there is a hashtag that's been released. Uh, to try and get this movie off the ground, like um, make Solo 2, hashtag make Solo 2. So not, you... not cryptic, is it? I mean, that's pretty much all <clears> it <throat> Hopefully, they'll come to their senses and make them. They're really focusing now on, from what I can tell from the last Star Wars celebration, on uh, TV content now and moving away from the movies for a while after this kind of movie yeah. comes out. The Mandalorian it's... looks good and he's yeah. got a great director. Yeah, yeah. So that was number four, number four. which leaves me well, with... Well, it was number... Two. Number two, I'm working backwards again. That's what I do. I have to mix it up. So number one, Flight of the Navigator. Ooh. 1986, uh, directed by Randall Kleiser, starring Joey Kramer and a very young Sarah Jessica Parker. Um, watched this film recently with my kids and they enjoyed it. Uh, it doesn't really work. I mean, nothing ever really sort of stands up when you watch it again 20, 25 years later. I remember wanting to fly that ship so bad. I loved it. It's got little creatures in it, in the, you know, uh, the character of Max, the robot inside, the alien car. <laughs> yes, the one. Uh, the Beach Boys scene, well, the Beach Boys soundtrack scene when he's learning to fly it and everything else. Yeah. Um, so my idea for a sequel for this one would just be that basically the alien guy comes back um, and he's maybe a little bit older or maybe he's not it's just a couple of years down the line and he just goes on another adventure through space and time with with the Max guy and loads of adventures they could have in that little alien craft they could go back in time they could go forward in time I mean the the, the ship could do anything so it could um, it's just got loads of legs it could even be a fantastic TV series for kids like Quantum Leap for the new generation yeah so that's my top five 
I liked all of them. Less sold on your number one, weirdly. I was led with that one. Napoleon Dynamite? No, the other way round. <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, look, I'm here to... I'm going to put these in order. One, I'd least like to see. Yeah, Napoleon Dynamite. Not Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> Flight the Navigator. Flight the Navigator. Mm, oh, it's a tricky one after that. Then I'd go two, four, three, five. Napoleon Dynamite being the one I'd most like to see a sequel Oh, uh, really? I think Attack the Block works best for me. <sighs> then Solo. It's tricky. Um, and then... Yeah, District 9 maybe, and then Napoleon Dynamite in Flight of the Navigator. But yeah, I mean, if any of those sequels came out tomorrow, I would not be unhappy. I'd be like, pretty stoked, because I'd want some cash as well. So it's, <laughs> it'll be your turn next. My turn. Are we Are we going to do another top five? <laughs> we can try. <laughs> and I'm sure there's other top fives out there. There's top fives. So my challenge to you is, this is a real geeky one, you're going to love this. It's top five computer games that have not had a film made about them. Ooh. Now I thought he was going to go with uh, top five superheroes that haven't had their own film. No. You're, well, you can do that one instead if you like. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, the, they're bound to happen because basically once but after... They're doing the, them all. Yeah. Um, so yeah, look at... Obviously, <clears throat> computer games to movies are, are renowned to be poor. We've done one. They they they're, they're all poor. Um, but So I want to hear what what you can come up with and you're a gamer or you were a gamer I'm a gamer yeah I've you know about games chess it. Scrabble you name oh, it name it cribbage uh, <laughs> yeah is that a game backgammon mm, beautiful um, <laughs> so it's it's not bacon based Chris no this is your 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 game isn't it oh yeah this is a good one I like this okay so that's your I'm challenge good luck thanks and so if you want to get involved in a top five uh, well, you, you can't, but if you want uh, <laughs> I mean, to... Fuck you, it's our thing. <laughs> but yeah, please, um, if you've got any ideas that you want to contribute to the, the show, give Matt some ideas or for top five games to uh, film, then why not tweet us or send us a picture on Instagram? Not uh, your nutsack, though, because no, that was bad. Uh, you'll get banned for that shit. Um, and we'll see you on the next bunker. Bye. Bye. Well, that was in unison.